Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. I'm Adam Proctor as always. Joining me today, I've got David Bush. He is an editor over at rankandfile.ca. It's a Canadian labor website. Uh, It's got a lot of really great articles and stuff. He is also a labor organizer himself. He's going to be talking about the politics of universal basic income. It's a really great conversation. I was happy to have him on the show. Uh, A couple of months ago, he put together a nice collection of online articles and positions about UBI and basic income in general. Uh, That topic is particularly hot where he lives and organizes in Toronto, Canada, uh, because the government of Ontario has launched a pilot program to study a certain kind of UBI. Uh, And to be clear, for those who don't know, the government in Toronto is a liberal government, very much a centrist, neoliberal uh, type of um, political coalition there for those who are not um, aware. So any liberal, centrist, neoliberal, rather centrist type of political party that's advocating for UBI, we should probably be a little bit suspicious on the left. So David is going to walk us through some of these arguments. Uh, We talk about automation. We talk about some of the pros and cons of UBI and some of the political impasses to uh, to establishing it. So stay tuned. Uh, this is sure to be a contentious topic. I know some on the left are very much in favor of UBI, but David is on the ground uh, where that, that type of uh, policy is being tested as we speak. And just a quick note, this is the free version of today's interview. It is a shortened version for the public. Uh, I've got a longer version uh, that I that I did with David. Uh, it's over on my Patreon page. And speaking of which, my Patreon is booming. Thank you all so much uh, for your support if you are a member of the Dead Pundit Society. Um, if not, and you would like to hear the full version of this interview, and you also want to hear some bonus content and exclusive episodes with the likes of Adolph Reed, Angela Nagel, Jacobin uh, founder Baskar Sankara, uh, the great Katie Halper, and others, head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. One word, slash deadpundits. And you can uh, smash that subscribe button. Uh, For $5 or $8 a month, uh, you will get full access to all of my bonus content. Any amount of money that you can uh, pledge uh, is much appreciated as well. I recognize that we don't all have a lot of disposable income. But doing a podcast is hella expensive. To be honest with you, I'm still not quite uh, in the black in terms of my expenses. I'm still in the red. (laughs) I had to buy a laptop and a full microphone setup and amps and all the rest of it to do this. And uh, I haven't even quite made my money back yet. So any of the support that you can give me financially is much appreciated. Uh, I I do this uh, for the love of the politics and the movement. Uh, But money uh, doesn't grow on trees. Just ask uh, Theresa May. She'll tell you. In any case, check me out on Twitter at Dead Pundits if you uh, never stop posting. Check me out on Facebook. You can search for Dead Pundit Society. Like the page and you'll get all of the updates there every time I post an episode so that you won't miss it. 
So in this interview, David Bush lays out some of the history of UBI and the debates that sort of preceded it. Uh, This UBI model is nothing new. Uh, He points to a famous intervention by United Auto Workers legendary leader uh, Walter Ruther in 1958, uh, where the UAW proposed a profit-sharing plan uh, that would be very similar to what, what a lot of folks on the left now consider to be a uh, principled UBI program. So I'm going to bring you a two-minute clip. Uh, this is Mike Wallace, the uh, legendary Mike Wallace from 1958, interviewing Walter Ruther about his profit-sharing plan. And now to our story. Yesterday here in Detroit, Walter Ruther and his United Auto Workers finished hammering out their plans for upcoming contract negotiations. Their demands will include increased unemployment benefits, an undisclosed but apparently substantial hourly wage hike, and most controversial, a profit-sharing plan that has outraged the big three, Chrysler, Ford, and General Motors. The first question I'd like to put to you is this. What is the idea, the philosophy behind this profit-sharing demand. If your union wants more money, why doesn't it simply ask for higher wages, the way that unions have been doing all along? Why profit-sharing? Well, we have proposed profit-sharing for 1958 because we believe this is the most effective way to expand purchasing power. And purchasing power is the key to the economic future of the American economy. Our economy is in trouble. There's a serious and growing imbalance between expanding productive power and lagging purchasing power. And we believe that workers, consumers, and farmers are being shortchanged and that they are not getting their fair share of the fruits of our developing technology. Well, I the giant corporations are getting more than their share. They're getting a disproportionately large share. And because they are keeping more than their proper share, this is creating this serious imbalance out of which unemployment and recession is developing. Right. Now, this is not only a matter of economic justice. This is a matter of economic necessity because our free economy will not work unless we maintain an expanding and dynamic balance between higher productive power balanced by higher purchasing power. And when one gets out of joint with the other, we get in trouble. Mr. Ruther, let's come to the nub of the profit-sharing discussion, which is, in the minds of a good many people, it's been suggested by the heads of the big three and by numerous newspapers across the country that this is a Ruther giant step towards socialism. How do you react toward that charge? Well, I react this way. I think this is perhaps the most pro-free enterprise demand that we have ever made. Because the only way you can make free enterprise secure is to give every American a stake in the fruits of its technology. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me this week is David Bush. He is the editor of rankandfile.ca. It's a Canadian news and analysis website. It's really great. I've linked to some articles in the show notes about UBI. David, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining us. Um, We've had some requests to do a UBI show basically ever since I started the show several months ago. Um, And I've been holding off because it's a really hot topic and I didn't really feel like there was enough clarity to address uh, all of the sides adequately. But you did us a service, sir. (laughs) You put together a really excellent reading list um, about UBI on your blog. And I will link to that on the show notes as well. So tell us just a little bit about how what your background is and how you took up UBI um, as, as, as an issue. 
So I'm an editor at rankandfile.ca, which is a Canadian labor news and, uh, website where we try to provide sort of critical analysis of what's going on in the labor movement. And uh, I live in uh, Toronto, Ontario, and uh, one of the major issues that we're sort of confronting here in this province is that the government, the Liberal government, is bringing in a basic income pilot um, where they're going to be testing out a basic income program uh, on 4,000 individuals in this province in three different communities. And so it was incumbent upon us and uh, other people in the labor movement to sort of figure out where we stand on the issue of basic income uh, and why this, uh, why basic income actually presents a real problem for the labor movement and for issues about fighting for a higher minimum wage. Because basic income here in this province is actually supported by the right wing. The Ontario Chamber of Commerce, for instance, uh, says it we should lower the minimum wage, we should have uh, no improved working standards, but we should have basic income instead. And so we want to figure out why, why, why is that? Why does the right wing support basic income? Now, of course, there's people on the left in the province who also support basic income. So it is a very complex issue that touches on many real debates within the left about how to approach uh, social change. So let's talk about the birth of basic income, because one thing that you have, you've helped me uh, clarify about this is that, you know, I think we on the left, we talk about UBI, and I'm even sort of t I've titled the show after that sort of sentiment. So talking about universal basic income, but that's a more particular type of the more universal category, which is just basic income, just BI. Right. So there, there are three fairly distinct uh, subcategories of basic income BI, uh, UBI being one of them. And uh, so so tell us about those three that we have UBI. There's the sort of Friedmanite version and then the, the more uh, actionable targeted basic income. Maybe delineate those for us. Uh, yeah. So universal basic income uh, is the sort of mechanism by which everybody receives, no matter who you are, a certain amount of money, income from the state. And then, but that's just one version. As you said, there's another version is the negative income tax model where people below a certain uh, income level receive a amount to bring them up to that level. So the lower you are, the more money you would receive. Um, and if you are at or above that level, you receive no money. And so that's the negative income tax model. That is actually favored by Milton Friedman. And then there's the targeted basic income model, which is essentially a means-tested basic income, or what I like to call real-world basic income, because everywhere that basic income has been tried, like in places like Finland, in Ontario that's coming up, in Kenya, uh, in India, in Manitoba back in the 70s, this has been all targeted basic income, where a select group of people targeted either visa means tested or lottery are provided a basic income and this is a way these are usually framed as pilot projects to test outcomes and so these are the three broad versions of course what makes it difficult to talk about basic income is that we often leave it at an abstract level i.e we don't really talk about it as a concrete proposal of a certain amount of uh, money for instance, because when we talk about a UBI, it could be anywhere from $1,000 a year 
to people talk about it, you know, $35,000, $40,000 a year. And those, there's a vast difference in what that looks like in terms of both uh, the expenditures, but also the revenues required to make that happen. And I think the more you make that debate uh, and the more you make that discussion around concrete proposals, I think the more clarity we can have around, you know, is this workable? Is this a good path for the left? What are the dangers? What are the possible barriers? Right. Because again, uh, as I was saying, you know, basic income, it touches on, you know, a theory of social change about how we can transform people at the bottom, get them more resources and more income. And also, you know, what is the nature of the state uh, under capitalism? And so depending on where you fall on those questions, you know, you, you may have different perspectives here. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned off air, uh, and it really helped me sort of think this through, is one of the reasons why this is such a fraught question, I think, for everyone, but 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 particularly for us on the left, is that it it's it's really kind of a it's 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 it serves as a kind of unconscious empty signifier for all of the the difficulties and and, and the lack of clarity, theoretical and and, and and strategic that we have on the left, right? So you've already mentioned two. Uh, one would be you know theories of social change. Um, you know, how is social change possible? Who are the actors? Uh, what are the the sources of power that those actors necessarily have at their disposal or don't have at their disposal? We then have the nature of the capitalist state. So, you know, what is the relationship of classes with the state? How are classes uh, 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 either related to the state or how are they articulated by and through the state, right? Uh, how, how is class power disseminated through the state. And I'm going to be doing an episode on this in the coming weeks about uh, state theory. So this is a little preface for that. Uh, but uh, others that you mentioned to me, uh, questions of automation, for example. And I know that, that we're sort of jumping the gun by even bringing that up, but we're going to talk about that in detail. And then finally, uh, the nature of capitalist labor markets um, is, is absolutely crucial here. So I've thrown a lot at you and, and you sort of laid that out for me before the show in, in that way. How, how would you like to tackle those? Maybe one by one, we could, we could talk about the history, uh, going back to the 1950s and the debates, uh, as, as, as these sort of, uh, debates arose. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think before I get into a question of automation, it's worth laying out what, uh, real world basic income looks like right now in terms of what are governments and policy wonks proposing and implementing across the world. So in Ontario, again, as I said, it's three communities that are being targeted for this pilot project. And 30% of the people in the pilot project will be uh, recipients of social assistance, uh, so welfare or ODSP. You know, and 70% of people will have no ties to social assistance, but will be working poor. And they will be given an approximate amount of uh, about $1,700 a month. So to clarify, the, they will receive no other social welfare benefits other than this $1,700 basic income. So they get $1,700 basic income. That's right. And they'll be okay. uh, exited from social assistance supports. So people, the 30% of people on social assistance will have to self-navigate. So uh, if there is um, you know, any issue that they will have to self-navigate through the social welfare system, right? Rather than having supports or relying on social workers, etc. Mm -hmm. So 
And then the 70% of people who are working poor who will be on this, 50% of their earned income above, above the 1700 bucks will be taxed back. So for every $2 they earn, they will get one. And it's also tied to uh, household income. So it's not transferable, uh, which is, you know, in a very interesting uh, discussion about sort of feminism and basic income, about the, uh, the ability for uh, especially women to move out of relationships and carry that basic income with them. In the pilot project, that's not possible. Wow. That's, that's atrocious just in and of itself. Yeah. Oof. And so yeah. this is for 4,000 people. And it's going to go over three years. And what it looks like, you know, on some level is a subsidy to low-wage employers. Okay. It's a, way in, it's, a, it's a way in which the liberal government here is saying, we don't need to raise social assistance. We're just going to do this study for three years. And instead of taking any action to address poverty, to address low uh, um, welfare rates, we're going to do this study, and then it will conclude that people who are, who are on social assistance, who will get a little more money than the, if they were on welfare, will be probably a little better off, minus being cut off certain supports and so forth. But we already know what needs to be done, which is poor people, people on welfare, need to be given more money. And we don't need a study for us to tell us that when poor people have more money, they're better off. But the basic income is a way in which they can avoid taking concrete action about raising welfare rates while also opening the door to, I think, a more politically dangerous thing for the labor movement and for the left, which is creating a state subsidy for low-wage employers. Good. So this is the, the most uh, you know, uh, contemporary example of how a basic income is being played out, given the balance of class forces and in, in, in the you know the the political forces uh, in the in the Ontario government. Um, so this is really instructive in terms of of how it's being framed, perhaps from the other side of of things. What have been the debates about the potential for this? Right, because one of the one of the pushbacks you get for folks in favor of UBI is that okay, sure, Adam. Uh, you're right. The ruling class uh, doesn't implement social policy in the correct way, in the way that we want. But that doesn't mean that we give up the, the fight in terms of, of, of trying to, to uh, pr- produce a more expansive welfare state. Um, at Emrets on Twitter uh, raised this concern. So I wanted to get to this one. So what are some of the pushback? What's some of the pushback on the left in Ontario uh, about, about the, 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 the potential benefits of UBI? So basic income, for instance, uh, supporters um, point to the Ontario liberal experiment. Now, some of them say this, I think, milquetoast, sort of not a great pilot program is paving the road for something better. Mm -hmm. But there's also another faction of basic income supporters in this province who say, you know what, the liberal program is bad. It's not universal, it's not high enough, it's not good enough. And so there is a bit of a division. And they say it's not universal, we want universal basic income. Now, the question becomes, okay, you want universal basic income, let's start painting that picture. Like, what rate? How much is the UBI going to be per year? And 
when you start doing a bit of the math, right, don't just talk about expenditures, but you also talk about revenues and expenditures, it can give us a sense of what's at stake and what is the political uh, cost going to be in terms of like what's how strong do we have to be to get this stuff? Right. right. And if it's set at fifteen thousand dollars for people over fifteen, a universal model that's one hundred and seventy two point five billion dollars in this province, and there's thirteen point five million people in Ontario. If you were to scrap uh, social assistance. Right, so to make it a bit cheaper, etc., you're right. still looking at somewhere in the 160 billion dollars range of new additional revenue that you have to generate. Now, to give you a perspective, the revenue total for our province is 130 billion dollars. So essentially, wow. you have to raise the entire entire new budget worth of revenue plus 30 billion dollars. Right, um, right. And so that gives us a sense of what it takes to achieve even $15,000 at the universal uh, level. Now, some people will say, but won't you make that money up in tax backs and clawbacks and so forth? And there's been a number of studies here in Ontario and in Canada looking at this, where uh, the CCPA, uh, which is the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, sort of looked at a UBI across Canada there's about 35 million people in Canada, 36 million people. And to have a UBI of just $1,000 is $29 billion. And that's accounting for all the tax backs and clawbacks that you could get. And that's 14% of all the revenue. And the reason why I'm going through all these dry, dry numbers is to just give us a sense of what it's politically going to take for us to squeeze this new revenue out from the ruling class. Right. So let me let me push back a little bit because I, I, I see where you're headed and I want to push on that. We're going to push on that for the for the rest of the show. But before we get there, I want to play devil's advocate. Uh, we in the United States are pushing for, um, say, universal higher education and, of course, uh, universal Medicare for all. And one of the, you know, uh, uh, pushbacks we get from both liberals in, in this country and, of course, the right wing is, my God, that's incredibly expensive. Where is this money going to come from? Of course, uh, our friend uh, Theresa May in, uh, in, in uh, the UK uh, put up the metaphor of the magical money tree, right? What is there, a magical money tree? We don't have this thing, you know, so that we can keep funding social programs. So it's it, on the face of it, it, it seems like you're making – a similar argument about, well, this will never happen because it's just too expensive. And I think a lot of people on the left would push back and say, well, yes, universal Medicare might be a little bit more expensive, although there's some figures out there that show it probably wouldn't be much more. But but nonetheless, universal higher education certainly would be. Um, so what's your rebuttal there? My rebuttal is, is it's not to say that we shouldn't think about generating new revenue, that we shouldn't write things off as impossible. It is to actually give us a concrete understanding of what politically it will take to squeeze out that money from the ruling class. Because there's no point in burying our heads in the sand when it talks uh, when we talk about this stuff, right? We can't just talk about expenditures without talking about revenue. And this is not a dry policy thing. This is politics. Right. Because it requires political struggle to raise taxes, to expropriate wealth from the ruling class. And so unless we understand what level that is going to be at, then I think it's harder for people to conceptualize 
what people are politically asking around UBI. Now, I have other criticisms of UBI, but just on itself, we have to understand that getting uh, you know, a level of UBI, and $15,000 in Ontario is not that much money, requires a massive political struggle uh, to be waged. And there's another question here, which is in the same study, in the same CCPA study, they talk about that $29 billion being spent on this universal basic income. And it has, uh, they've calculated about a 2% uh, reduction in poverty. And the author concludes, Stephen McDonald, concludes that this is a poor, extremely poor way to spend $29 billion if your goal is to reduce poverty. Right, right. So there is a cost-benefit analysis where is this the best use of our resources? Is this the best use of our political capital? And I think those are open questions that we shouldn't be afraid to ask. I think we also, uh, you know, there's the strategic element. And I, I like to return to that in this show because I'm a firm believer that we can dream up policy and, and ideal scenarios. But if we don't have a strategy to get there, then, you know, it's uh, somewhat lost. So we can talk about the strategic element and we certainly will. But let's talk about the form of, of wealth redistribution in the Ontario model. Now, I'm troubled that, you know, in an era where uh, slogans like tax the rich and down with those uh, fat cat Wall Street bankers are incredibly popular, wildly, insanely popular. Um, I am troubled that it seems like uh, a lot of the capital raised by the state to go towards funding these programs would come from working people themselves, looking at clawing back 50% of the wages of people on this program. So what does that say about the redistributive uh, effects of this, of this policy? Yeah, I mean, that's how the liberals want to politically sell that. This can be, and it won't, but it can be, you know, somewhat self-funding model. Um, what's interesting to note is that latest polling in Ontario shows about a 51% um, support for basic income. Now, they don't tell you what basic income. Is it universal that people are supporting? Are they supporting the government's plan? Just the notional idea of, of a basic income, 51% of people support. But the strongest block of support actually comes from small, medium enterprise uh, owners, which uh, supported at a rate of around 67%, wow. uh, by far and away the strongest block of support for basic income. And there's a reason for that. One, it pushes back. They like to counterpose raising the minimum wage and having a basic income. The other is it's, it's politically and economically smart for them to support this because ultimately the impact of a basic income for them is a state subsidy for their wages. So instead of raising wages, what they want and expect and hope for in a basic income model is that the state will subsidize their low wages. So they, there will be less and less pressure for them to pay higher wages. And essentially, where does that tax base come from? Mostly it comes from working class people who are paying those wages. And so when you, know, when you look at it over time, it, it is not such a great redistributive model relative to you know, other options. 
Let's talk about uh, that brings to mind uh, the Walmart case here in the U.S. And, and you've written a little bit about how Walmart uses public assistance here in the U.S. to subsidize their low wages. Maybe just kind of give us a quick gloss on that, uh, because that could be the future that we're looking at under a UBI that's structured in the way it is in Ontario. Yeah. So uh, it's not just Walmarts, but McDonald's. They have that like sort of checkbook for uh, the ideal sort of um, McDonald's employee, uh, employee and be like, here's what you can do to make ends meet. And it, you know, it goes through all the things like here's your expenses, your bills, and then here's a wage, but then also make sure to apply for social assistance, etc. And Walmart actually, you know, has classically relied on um, social assistance at the state and federal level going to its uh, employees and not um, raising wages. And the more um, you have a UBI model that's funded and predicated on a minimal top-up to working-class people, the easier it is for big employers and small employers who pay not great wages to keep those wages not great. And the more we divorce, like ultimately divorce the notion of uh, wages from the employer rather than you know, getting our wages from the state, it actually reduces the power of working people to be able to grind out you know, in the aggregate, grind out more and more wages and wealth from the actual ruling class, their employers. So let's let's take this uh, at face value in terms of how the pro- the left proponents of UBI like to phrase this because we want to we want to tackle this in a material and a historical sense and we'll do that in in uh, later on in the show coming up very soon but let's tackle this first so the one of the concerns I get from M Ritz on Twitter who's who seems to be a, a careful proponent of UBI from the left and she's a, a great listener and, and 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 a fan of the show so I know she's coming from a good place here right so. Her concern is, wouldn't uh, progressive UBI decommodify labor in a certain sense? And as such, wouldn't it provide workers with increased exit and voice options? So to clarify there, one of Eric Olin Wright is a a Marxist sociologist, a big name in in the academic and intellectual universe. Uh, His argument is that UBI in this way would sort of serve as this uh, large uh, state-funded strike fund. Right, that would enable flexibility to folks in labor unions to to fight the bosses. What do you what do you say to that? Well, I mean, that sounds good, but on some level, I think it divorces the politics from you know the sort of utopian sort of economic model that uh, someone like Eric Olin Wright would want to craft. I.e., we can't do a policy end run around sort of the class conditions as they are. It requires a massive political struggle to even think that that question is possible. And so when we're talking about decommodifying labor, it's not just something that can just be magically done through the state. And again, this touches on what we think the capitalist state is. If you think a UBI at a rate that allows people to reproduce their life outside of entering the labor market, i.e., you know, housing, food, other general life expenses are all taken care of, and it doesn't require me to sell my ability to work on the labor market. If you think that's possible through a UBI, 
what we're really saying is that capitalists would be okay with workers and basically providing the funds for workers to go on unlimited general strike against themselves. And so the question becomes, do we think that's actually a political possibility? And my answer is no. And the reason I say that is not because, you know, it's some abstract thing, but it is the logic of the situation. Capitalists require a labor force that's willing to work, that needs to work, and they need to exploit them for profits. And they're not going to, unless they're forced to, through massive political means, allow workers to sit outside the labor market. And in fact, uh, you know, if we think that they, they will do that, it means that we also think that the uh, capitalist class will not respond, both politically but also economically. They won't raise prices on goods and services. They won't, um, you know, do other things that like raise rents, compel people back into the labor market. And so I think it, on some level, that scenario sort of lies in this fantasy between capitalism and socialism, where we leave capitalists in charge of the means of production, but we basically mess with or fundamentally alter the DNA of capitalist labor markets. And on some level, we can say the whole history of capitalism can be sort of its quest to create a working class that's dependent on selling its labor. And the idea that we can sort of destabilize that to the point of it won't function as a labor market, uh, I don't think is a real possibility. It's, in fact, easier for me to imagine, you know, full socialism or nationalizing the commanding heights of the economy than it is that scenario. Right. So as, as, as the listeners will be able to tell from that uh, uh, very careful and eloquently laid out response, uh, David, you, you to address that concern, you had to run the whole gamut of the topics that we talked about, the intersections uh, that sort of play out in this debate. I mean, you talked about the notion of uh, the, the nature of the capitalist state. You talked about theories of social change. You talked about the class structure and, and how to get power and all the rest. I mean, so, we, so the problem is with UBI, we have to talk about everything to talk about anything. Um, so I want to spend the rest of the episode untangling things. Now, the Trump card that's often put in play here. And I want to I want to just bookmark this for later in the episode because I can anticipate some of my listeners screaming into their smartphones or wherever they're listening to this, you know, making, you know, lunch or sitting on a subway or whatever else on their evening commute. Um, they're saying, "Okay, that sounds good, but what about automation?" Isn't automation fundamentally restructuring our economy? And aren't the capitalists, those greedy bastards, going to have to come to grips with this in the way that the kind of vanguard of the ruling class, like the Elon Musks and so on, and the Zuckerbergs, already have? That they're already seeing the writing on the wall, that there's this irreversible uh, alteration in the structure of capital and labor that has been spawned by automation and globalization and the production of a, of, of a precariat, which is increasingly, uh, so the story goes, unmoored from the circuits of labor in global capitalism. So that's something um, I want to flag because I just I want to be sure that folks aren't going to turn this off and think that we're not going to address those seemingly plausible objections. 
So I don't know if you have any immediate thoughts on that. We can get back to it. But I would like to sort of play out the history starting from the 1950s of how the question of, of the debate, rather, of basic income versus full employment sort of played out in the post-war era. Yeah, so I mean, basic income has a a long history, um, you know, going back uh, centuries. But in the modern post-war period, uh, I think, you know, early debates that involve questions of automation happen in the 1950s in America. And the ground zero of this was in the auto sector. And in 1953, as the Korean War was basically winding down, the automation began, became um, more and more present in the auto sector as it did in steel, as it did in rubber, as it did in mining. And there was massive, massive layoffs in the auto sector. And auto workers, there was a great debate between two factions of the auto workers about how best to respond to this massive job loss, to this automation. And one of the uh, proposals was for a 30-hour work week paid for 40 hours. So 30 for 40, as it was called. And the other faction, the Rutherites, uh, his leadership faction, advocated for a guaranteed annual income, a version, a micro version of basic income for auto workers. So if you were laid off, if you were out of work, you get a small guaranteed annual income from the company. It wasn't deferred wages, but it was like almost like a penalty that the um, company would pay. And it was essentially designed to make sure that auto workers had some income in bust times and also to discourage layoffs. The other side, basically, you know, on some level, it was like the full employment side, thought, well, what we want to do is actually have more control over production. We want to say... Uh, less work, but more pay, and more people can work. Ruther opposed this because it did get to the question of control over production in a way that the guaranteed annual income did not. His position ultimately ended up winning, and you saw versions of a guaranteed annual income in steel and in the auto sector. And the auto sector guaranteed annual income survived all the way up into 2008. And it survived, although diminished well over time, and was ultimately done in with because economic and classes, uh, like the balance of class forces changed dramatically to, to the point where guaranteed annual income got crushed. It got just dispensed. And the lesson, I think, is to understand that we can't think of UBI as this magic bullet because it is also dependent on political struggle to shape and continually shape what that reform looks like. And it's while it's easy to imagine a great UBI, it's also just as easy to imagine that, that U, great UBI being crushed and whittled down and used for nefarious purposes by our ruling class when we're politically weak. And I wouldn't say, in the current moment, although the left has had some victories and on the fight for 15, I'm not a pessimist, um, but I wouldn't say that we're in a rising tide of class struggle either. So the idea of thinking that we can do uh, a policy end run around this question of class forces and the balance of class forces 
uh, I think would be mistaken. And that's one of the interesting sort of little lessons from the auto workers in the 1950s. Interesting. So I want to lay this out. Uh, I want to lay out the history here. Uh, because without the concrete history and working through the, the the loss of class power through the 1970s and 80s and into what what's called the neoliberal period, of course, we focus too much on um, you know kind of uh, idealist counterfactuals. Um, so let's get real uh, historically and material embedded here. Um, one of the interesting parallels here in terms of the kind you have to you have to imagine the sort of paranoia of the ruling class in the 1960s when when the 50s and 60s when this guaranteed annual income versus full employment uh, debate was going on in the labor left and 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 a really useful case uh i'm going to have on michael mccarthy soon i've been promising him for a long time and he wrote a book on pensions and the development and transformation of uh, trade union uh, labor sector pensions uh, coming out of the 1960s. Uh, that's really instructive for, for the kind of transformations that we've faced. And so the story that he tells, and he tells this in brief and very succinct form on uh, Doug Henwood's Behind the News. He did that interview a couple of weeks ago, so people should check that out. But he talks about how pensions primarily were transformed in the 1960s, I believe, because, uh, long story short, trade unions through their pension funds uh, were amassing large sums, large slush funds at the national level. We're talking about like billions of dollars, um, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, this was a result of the way in which there was this kind of shift in the 50s and 60s against bargaining for control at the point of production towards bargaining for wages and benefits. So the cap, you know, capital was happy to uh, fatten uh, the pension plans as long as they uh, kept control at the plant and at the factory and so on and so forth. So long story short, uh, labor unions were awash in funds in their pensions. And so there was, this, there was this real fear at the time that these pensions would be used, they would be transformed into these massive strike funds. Uh, that would fund the the militant labor actions of these national unions, and they could you know then go and get whatever they wanted because they could stay out uh, on strike on the picket lines for a, a relatively long period of time to 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 get their demands uh, from the bosses. And so the pension plan was was transformed, and there were very strong restrictions placed on how this uh, these monies in these pension uh, plans could be programs could be allocated. And and this was this was a, a, a form of a, a number of policies that was in place. So so yeah, sorry about the the long spiel there, but that's a that's an example of how capital and the bosses and politicians are ever weary and paranoid of giving labor the structural power to go out on strike. And it, so it seems to me that the UBI issue here is kind of pie in the sky if we ignore that history, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that. Uh, if we look at the history of most victories of social reforms that labor and the left has won, we look at a, you know conditions in which a strong labor movement, a strong left wing, was able to grind out some concessions from capital through major uh, strikes, through major struggle. Um, in Canada, we have the health care coming in the sort of late 50s, 60s, being able to win that through political struggle uh, at a time when labor was in its ascendancy. 
We also have, you know, I think a lot of people say, well, what's the difference between UBI and other reforms under capitalism? And so the example that they would use would be unemployment insurance. Is the most close is the closest thing to sort of you know in terms of touching on the labor market. What's interesting in the history of unemployment insurance is that in Canada at least unemployment insurance uh, reaches its peak in terms of coverage, in terms of the amount people are given in the 1970s after, uh, and this is also happens to be a massive strike wave and an insurgent left uh, in, in Canada. And uh, we had coverage of around 80% of people who were unemployed. And even if you were fired, you were able to access unemployment insurance. That has virtually been halved in the time since. The unemployment insurance doesn't cover you if you are fired currently. And the whole history of neoliberalism can be wrapped up in a look at the unemployment insurance program where it now today is barely works, it barely functions, and it barely covers unemployed workers. And the reason why it was so viciously attacked was that it did allow workers to stay out of the labor market, not in total and not forever. So it would be like a very modest um, in comparison to you know, a robust UBI. And it got viciously attacked by capital because it wanted to create a flexible labor force and you know, make sure working class people are in fear and willing to take any job. And so unless we're able to put UBI in a political context, we risk the idea that uh, we can have a magical policy that is... Um, separate from political struggle. That's right. And one of the, I mean, I think one of the the unemployment insurance, at least in, in the United States context where I'm familiar with it, uh, is, is really instructive here because contrary to the policy realities of the attacks on unemployment insurance, a lot of folks, particularly like um, you know, Dean Bakers of the world, these progressive economists, will, will produce studies and figures to demonstrate that, you know, for, I don't making these numbers up, but it's something along the lines. You know, for every dollar we spend on unemployment insurance, you get back like a dollar twenty in total economic output or benefit to the to the economy. So at the macro level, uh, you know, things like unemployment insurance and benefits like that are actually beneficial to the economy as opposed to uh, being parasitic. Uh, so so despite the kind of like rationale, the rationality argument that, hey, this makes sense, this is actually good for capitalism, the capitalists nonetheless uh, still see it as a threat to their structural power. Um, and so that's, a, that's I think that's a nice parallel for, for UBI in a sense. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that, um, you know, many people approach the question of basic income from a rational policy perspective, which is to say, you know what, the way in which these things happen is for people, bright people to come up with bright ideas that are like to make the world better. Uh, and we just have to take those policy ideas to policy makers, uh, convince them through reason, and then they will implement it. And that's how the system works. And it is far from true that that is the way in which social policy is actually made, concocted, uh, and enacted. 
well said. This gets into this, the nature of the capitalist state, right? Is the state this this sort of neutral battleground whereby through democratic means and logic and rationality, we convince our uh, responsive representatives to enact the policies that, you know, we advocate for, uh, you know, in our, in our interest group? Or is it a far more rigidly structured uh, class field of, of, of struggle uh, that sort of dictates uh, what is or isn't accepted from the outset, right? Uh, contrary to scientific or logical rationality. So you can see we're really getting deep here in a lot of theoretical and strategic issues, and the UBI is really tangled up in all of them. So, yeah, I mean, the capitalist state, you know, in Canada and I suspect in America and elsewhere, you know, the analysis is the capitalist state is essentially trying to consistently and constantly create the conditions for capital accumulation. And of course, there's a struggle inside the state and a struggle um, around the state about, you know, contestations about how that should look and pushback from the working class. But the capitalist state's function is about creating a stable labor market, is about creating the conditions for accumulation. And that is why we saw, you know, when faced with an economic crisis in the 70s, and in the early 90s, the Canadian capitalist state crushed and gutted social programs, gutted EI, raided EI funds to balance the budget, saw a great uh, transfer of wealth from bottom to the top. And so we can't avoid that by thinking that the state is some sort of neutral apparatus that is a rational policy making machine in which it just wants the world to be a better place. It doesn't. It, you know, it is on some level part of a cla- the class nature of, this, of, of, of Canada, of, of, of capitalism. Right. And not to prefigure the episode that's upcoming on the capitalist state, but I think the most important takeaway there is that so I think, you know, you're absolutely correct to, to lay out to say like, you know, the cat, the state is not this sort of responsive thing that just sort of responds to good logic and rationality and, and, and a bunch of up, you know, gosh, darn upstanding citizens speaking their mind. You know, we know that they're that they, as Marxists, as leftists, as socialists, we understand that the state is a, is a repressive apparatus in addition to, you know, a governing one. And, and, and it's and it's structured in, in, in a sort of vulgar Marxist way of understanding is the executive committee the executive committee of the bourgeoisie. And so that's one way of looking at it. But then, of course, the impulse is to say, well, we just need to smash it. We just need to do away with it. We need to get rid of it. The problem there, however, is that, you know, we ourselves and, 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 and labor itself is also in a really perverse way attached to the success of various state accumulation projects. And so, um, you know, as much as we despise capitalism, perhaps the only thing worse than capitalism right now is, is, is no capitalism which is to say <laughs> chaos, no jobs, uh, no work, no benefits, no structured government or, or, or anything else. And so, yeah, I, would just, I just want to sort of prefigure that because there's a really careful way that we need to uh, address, these, address these things because a lot of people, and maybe you can respond to this, a lot of folks then will say, well, isn't labor, right? This is, I think James Livingston makes this argument in his Against Work book and a lot of others. They'll say, well, therefore, doesn't this prove that labor is a naturally regressive and reactionary force. 
because it is in that sense tied to the success of the accumulation strategy of the state in which it finds itself? Um, Yeah, I mean, no. I think anyone who is active on the left uh, has to reject that because, you know, you work inside labor unions. They're imperfect. They are, you know, structured like as part of an inside capitalism, but they're also structured in the interests of workers. Uh, And there are venues and organization in which workers' voices can be magnified, uh, in which workers can combine, organize themselves, and fight for their class interests. And and it's open in terms of what unions look like. And it's, you know, my opinion is the role of the left to be part of those working class organizations to create a pull inside those organizations for them to be the most... Uh, effective and strongest voice for workers. So I, I, I think, you know, my opinion, like you, you have to, especially if you're an engaged leftist, reject that idea that uh, labor is predeterminedly bad because it, it is under capitalism, labor unions. Right, right. So there I've added another uh, another wrench to the pile of topics that intersect in UBI because I really do think as moving forward, I want to move to automation. Uh, and, and one of the, you know, you can't talk about automation. You can't talk about a transformation of the class structure in global capitalism without, you know, addressing this underlying assumption that there is something regressive or old fashioned about labor unions as a tactic, because that's either the implicit or explicit assumption that often comes along with these analyses about the so-called mechanization, automation of of the labor force. Autonomization, sure, that's a tongue twister. So let's move there. Let's move to automation. Uh, What is the argument uh, about automation, what do uh, the proponents of this uh, transformation uh, say? I mean, so this gets down to you know one of the core aspects of the basic income debate, which is we need basic income because jobs are disappearing and there's no way in which workers can reproduce their livelihood. And so it requires that the state intervene and provide uh, income to people because jobs are increasingly being um, destroyed by automation. And, uh, you know, this is very commonplace argument. The problem with the argument, uh, is if we uh, take a step back from sort of flashy robots or the headlines about self-driving cars, etc., or smartphones or smart machines, and we look at these sort of macroeconomic indicators, quite a different story emerges. In fact, the opposite story emerges. Since 2005, we have seen or been living through the longest period of low productivity growth since records were kept, or at least since World War II. I.e. productivity has been growing at its lowest rate since 2005 compared to any other time. What that tells us is that it's the opposite of what we'd expect to find if we think we're on the cusp uh, of full automation or increasing automation. The more jobs that are automated, the more jobs that are replaced by robots, the more job tasks that are filled by machines means that each worker's productivity will grow up, uh, grow, 
and the productivity rates will be escalating. Instead, they have been plateaued. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Uh, I can get into that in a bit. The other economic indicator that's pretty interesting is job migration, i.e. people moving from career to career, job to job. Uh, and that has been also at extremely low rates since about 2005. Now that has been that's that goes under the banner uh, broadly speaking of like say maybe the post-industrial society, uh, the transition of folks to the service sector economy, uh, those types those types of uh, arguments is that what you're referring to there? Yeah, and so if we were seeing you know increasing automation, we'd see increasing job migration because people would be leaving a career that uh, got automated and going to another job. Right. I'm not trying to say that automation won't doesn't exist or won't exist or won't happen, but the rate at which it happens compared to the rate of job creation um, has to be sort of you know thought of, right? And it's not an automatic because one job disappears because of automation that other jobs won't be popping up. In fact, if we think of most jobs today, they didn't exist 100 years ago. So the macroeconomic indicators actually tell us the opposite is happening that we actually are, jobs are not being destroyed at automation at record levels. Um, and uh, so I find it very curious that people have this huge um, narrative that they've been attached to that says automation is happening, it's impending, and it's doom and gloom, when just the opposite is happening. And there's a couple of reasons, I think, why that is the case. One of the reasons is it's a structural condition of what's going on in Silicon Valley. They have a self-interest in perpetuating a narrative that says automation is the new thing uh, you should invest in and all these new technologies that we're creating. And so they're creating new technologies, but their applicability in the economy is actually quite low. You know, So we have advances in smartphones over the last 10 years, but none of them are really making us any more productive workers. Uh, and so it's... Uh, they are trying to attract capital investment. So like things like Uber and Amazon, for instance, are uh, you know, inventing drones and melting self-driving cars, etc. Right, right. And having splashy headlines and saying, we're doing all these amazing things. And it's a bid to attract capital investment. If you look at Amazon, for instance, Amazon's a funny company. It's growing massively. But it's a uh, Earnings to share price uh, are 200 to 1, meaning it's a crappy investment. Uh, you know, earnings to share price at 20 to 1 are the upper ends of a good investment. So 10 to 1, 8 to 1, they're 200 to 1. I've seen that. So you, you can see they've been very successful at wielding this narrative of, you know, the future is now kind of thing to, to jack up their stock price at, at a far and away above their, their rate of actual profitability. Yeah. And yeah, one of the, it's also wrapped up in a story of the perpetual low growth that the U.S. economy and the North American economy and other Europe has had since the crisis. That growth rates have been sluggish, i.e. why would companies invest in major new technologies and labor-saving devices when growth is low, i.e. that they already have inbuilt capacity to produce at greater rates. The problem is the economy is slow, so they're not doing it. There's all sorts of unused capacity within the system. 
So capitalists, their first instinct is going to be use the existing capacity to its max, then innovate. That uh, is, explains part of the, part of the reasoning. Uh, and if you take this down and look at uh, in the automation sort of narrative, lots of it comes back to, well, you know, you increase the minimum wage, uh, places like McDonald's, places in the fast food and service industry will be, have massive automation in response. And I think, I think there will be innovation and automation, but the rate at which that will happen is a lot slower than I think people will uh, you know, appreciate. And the reason is it's complex that there are you know, tendencies that push capital to automate, right? So the competition between different firms requires people to invest in capital to be more productive, to increase market share. But the more capital you have, it makes you a less flexible firm. So if your competitor can figure out how to do it cheaply with or do the same thing cheap, cheaper with human labor, they're going to be more successful than you. The other thing is that in places like the fast food industry, that we have advances in technology, like so kiosks. Kiosks have existed for you know, last 15 years where you saw the first kiosks implemented in places like grocery stores, etc., self-checkout kiosks. The reason why you haven't seen a wide adoption of these is because they're actually not a very efficient technology. So McDonald's does 70% of its business through drive-through. Kiosks don't matter. Where kiosks have been implemented it has not changed the amount of labor required, but simply shifted where that labor is in the store. So you have more backline cooks, and you have now McDonald's with um, table service. And so it changes the nature of the jobs, but not necessarily, although it can, not necessarily the total working hours in uh, things like the service industry. Right. So I think we're getting to the more heady theoretical component. And I like that we started with the material material and the historical. So now we can sort of move to, you've touched on this, uh, I'm sure, uh, conscientiously, that Marx's, uh, you know, uh, version of how automation and mechanization works in his book, uh, Capital, Volume 1. Right. And, and this is really important to lay out, not just to show off our theoretical bona fides or whatever, but it's important to lay out because you need to have this under your belt in order to resist the temptation to to accept this uh, this utopian technological determinism that is pushed by the Elon Musk's of the world and, and others to say that there's this irresistible drive toward automation because science and mechanization potential uh, dictates it uh, di- dictates that this will be the future. But of course, if you understand capitalism, the way that Marx lays out in volume one, uh, which is not, you know, devoid of problems, but this is really, imp- this aspect is really important. I think he shows that you know automation, automation rather, and mechanization occurs not because well the science is here, uh, let's use it, but because it's a it's a strategic move by the capitalist class to uh, devalue the labor power of the worker, and so there's you know this goes under the banner of de-skilling. Uh, you know, if you can take away the skill set of of a, of a skilled machinist. Uh, a mechanic, an engineer is what they were mechanics were referred to back in the day. Um, and you can 
mechanize that job and then turn that worker into someone who greases the machine or sweeps the floor instead, then you can uh, devalue the bargaining position of that formerly skilled worker. And you can also devalue the, the wages that you have to pay this person. But that also points the reason why I'm laying this out because we can we can talk more about automation automation if you if you if you like. But what that lays out then is our next topic, which is that okay, even if you do away with the technological determinism aspect of of automation and mechanization, what you're still faced with due to this de-skilling is is there are people who are pushed down the skill ladder of the labor force. And inevitably, uh, people are going to be pushed off the ladder altogether. And there's this increasing class of folks who are peripherally or not at all attached to the labor force, the underclass, uh, the precariat, uh, as, as Guy Standing famously called them uh, in, uh, leading up to Occupy. Uh, what are your thoughts about autom- automation producing this change in class structure? Yeah, I mean, so I think that you are correct in saying that automation essentially is, uh, you know, as it's used by employers, as it's used by the ruling class, is a tool to de-skill labor to drive down labor costs. Um, And we have to separate the idea of technology in the abstract versus like its relation in the workplace between workers and management. And that technology on some level is better conceptualized as a form of discipline, as a technique of discipline than it is about like, you know, a cool robot. Um, And that there has been, you know, capitalists in, in, especially in manufacturing have been very good at de-skilling workers and shedding the amount of workers it takes to produce the same kinds of volume. In fact, you know, if you look at steel, uh, if you look at rubber, etc., the capacity that exists in the system, like worldwide, to produce steel, for instance, is is massive. It's way over what uh, we possibly could need, and this has, you know, caused a lot of job loss. And those workers, as you say, go into the service sector. They're uh, and they're faced with, you know, kind of entry level, the worst kinds of jobs, right? So the most devalued, de-skilled jobs exist. And Guy Standing has tried to create a theory out of this that they are, those workers are a new class, that the precariat class, who's not quite the working class. And conceptually, he says that these workers are essentially, you know, not central to the production of capital. And that these workers can't become a class of themselves and for themselves and, you know, have the means to change society. Because unlike traditional workers who have more stable jobs, etc., these workers are on the margins. And there's more and more of them on the margins of capital production. The problem with that is historically what Guy Standing would refer to as the precariat are people who work precarious jobs, kind of. And if you look at the history of capitalism, that's most workers. You know, if you look at the early parts of, let's say, auto industry, you know, Ford, uh, GM, etc., before they got unionized, were having turnover rates of three, four hundred percent. Every single definition of a precarious job, that would be it. And 
but they were still you know thought of as the working class because they were and so people who work as janitors people who work in the service industry are part of the working class i don't they work precarious jobs in the working class i.e bad jobs but they're part of the working class the moment we accept that there's a new class which has no i think definable social relation outside of a checklist made by guy standing and that they're not and they're marginal to the production of capital and to capitalism that the only way those workers can get a better deal is for people to advocate on their behalf you know people like guy standing people people who are uh, social policy wonks to put forward social policies that can make those uh, workers those precarious uh, people who are in the precariat lives better through UBI through whatever and I think you know I firmly reject that because I don't think that there's any sound basis for constructing a new subsect of the working class uh, an imagined new class and I also think politically we should reject that because we're, what we're saying is that those workers can't be agents of positive change. And I think that they can. I think that they're just as much part of the working class and that they can be active in creating a better world. Right. I think part of this is what you're getting at is that, you know, we need to push back against this narrative that circulates about the nature of what is called uh, neoliberalism. Um, and there's a lot of useful, you know, I think in, in social media, you'll see now the Jonathan Chates of the world uh, are, are, are attacking, you know, Chapo Trap House and Jacobin and Bhaskar Sankara. Uh, you know, it, there's this battle between like, you know, wither neoliberals, like who are the neoliberals? Do do the Jonathan Chates and the, the centrist liberals of the world, you know, uh, do they qualify as neoliberals? So yeah, we that word means a lot of different things. But one of the ways I think that it's 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 damaging, it's destructive, is that what it does is it it takes and I think you'll agree with me here. It takes the New Deal to the post-war era as the standard form of capitalism, right? A, a robust welfare state, uh, trade unions, all these types of things, and 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 then it contrasts neoliberalism as the sort of degraded form of that uh, more classic, normal version of capitalism in the post-war era. But what others have shown, and Vivek Chibber has done some work on this recently, that's actually couldn't be further from the truth, is that it's actually the post-war era that is the radical departure from the history of capitalism. And that what we're doing now, in a sense, and there's a lot of nuances here that need to be parsed out, but in a sense, neoliberalism is a return to the earlier, as you mentioned, more pure forms of capitalism. And so, you know, I think, I think that's a really important uh, aspect. And once again, we're returning to kind of like, you know, the nature of the capitalist state and, 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 and the history of capitalism. You can't talk about one thing without talking about everything. Is that right? Yeah, I would generally uh, agree with that for sure, that, you know, the preeminent form of capitalism is not the New Deal form of capitalism, but, you know, something that produces lots of bad jobs, and that is a political struggle to make those jobs better. And that's what it requires us to do, and that we're facing, con obviously, conditions of automation, etc., but we shouldn't overblow what, uh, you know, the newness of our situation. Automation is actually happening at a lower rate than it has before. Uh, capitalism is not growing in, you know, massive amount. And the question is, what's 
strategically should we do in this moment? If we take our lead from Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and say, you know what, all in on the UBI train, we have to be, um, I think, have our eyes wide open about the real dangers that can pose. And it requires a real concrete discussion about what is required to achieve those things, what are the political barriers that we would face, and is it even worth it? And, right, you know, right. my political perspective outside of that sort of debate is that I don't think ultimately you can have a robust U UBI and capitalism together. And I, I know others disagree with me, but it's all those other questions I think that we should have a, a, a real debate about, not just on an abstract level, but on a very concrete level. Because there's real dangers presented by UBI, and we shouldn't be shy that the capitalist class is actively organizing. You know, Guy Standing went to the World Economic Forum in Davos and is pitching this idea, working with the government of India to implement universal basic income or basic income models in different countries. You know, as John Clark, uh, you know, an activist here, an anti-poverty activist here said, I think they were hosting those meetings uh, beside the meetings like where they were talking about death squads. These, these people are not just talking about this in the abstract, but they're actually formulating a social policy and trying to implement it. And places like where they have done this little plan, it's turned out the progressive edge, like in places like Finland, which is going through its little pilot project, it's been a total bust. It hasn't helped people. It's been, you know, very small and ineffectual. Right. So it seems to me you have to ask the question, if UBI is being proposed and considered by places like India under, uh, under Narendra Modi and some of these other types of governments that are less than enlightened for sure, you know, what is the strategy there? What are the sort of subterranean, more militant forms of class struggle that UBI is meant to combat? It's meant to sort of obfuscate uh, from that, it's meant to to appear to be a more uh, palatable version or whatever else, right? I mean, these things, these policies exist uh, in, in a kind of structured terrain of struggle. They don't just sort of uh, get implemented in, in a graduate student seminar room, right, uh, in, in devoid of context. Yeah, and there's no shortcut uh, to socialism. Yeah, can we hack our way? I was going to get to that. Can we, you know, a lot of these Elon Musk types, the the Silicon Valley, you know, you see these articles, the clickbait that pops up and it's like 10 ways to hack your morning to more productivity, right? So can we hack our way to socialism? Can we can we propose a policy end run, as you say, around, around capitalism? Yeah, I mean, if all that was required to raise the standards uh, of working class people was us to write down our little plans. I, can, I have a great little plan for full Soviet rule of North <laughs> America. I write down, all down, etc. Except that's not politics, that's fantasy. And so the question becomes, we can't just think that we can dream up a social policy and it be implemented. There's a political struggle, and that political struggle also shapes what we think we can achieve within the bounds of capitalism as a reform. Now, some people may put forward the idea that having a robust universal basic income could be something like a transitional demand. The idea that it, we can't quite achieve it under capitalism, but we can organize around it 
in a way that raises expectations and asks people to go beyond capitalism. Now, maybe that's the case. I don't see anyone actually doing that. And I think there's a lot of dangers in that. And I think, but it's an open debate. But what we for sure can't do is divorce social policy from politics. And too many people who talk about UBI as a realistic road for the left don't have any realistic plan, don't have any realistic policy, and sure, I think, don't have any realistic assessment about the barriers that they would face, about the nature of capitalism and the nature of the capitalist state. This gets back to the what are our theories of social change? I think unless we have steeped these ideas in a form of class struggle, I think we're in trouble. And people with UBI want to reverse the causality. They say, if we had UBI, it would create uh, the conditions where, for stronger working class to fight back, except we have to get there first. So, I mean, you know, I, I fully anticipate uh, people coming out of the woodwork uh, to propose the, the version of UBI that would actually really work. Um, and I, you know, and I look forward to that. If you, if you, if you disagree with anything that's been said on the program, by all means, please voice it. Uh, particularly if you're uh, a regular listener of the show and you're down with the project. Uh, if you're just a hater, I don't know, you go, go, go scream at a wall somewhere. But, uh, so for example, right. Uh, following occupy, there were a lot of wonkish, uh, takes and, and I want to end on this. There are a lot of wonkish takes. One of them was the Robin hood tax. And the idea, this was proposed in, in, in the European Union first, if I'm not mistaken, and then uh, it was uh, sort of pushed here in the United States, that a Robin Hood tax would be like a financial transaction tax. And the X's and O's of this looked very different across the policy spectrum, but, the, but, but it would just be like a fraction of a cent on uh, 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 financial transactions. So these millions and millions, if not billions of these financial transactions go through every a day across the, the globe. And if you take just a teeny, 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 tiny fraction of a penny in, a t- in the form of a tax uh, out of these transactions, that you would be left with this tremendous pool of money. Um, now, the long story short of that is it seems like, okay, it's not very much money, you know, that, that people won't uh, protest too much, uh, but they have. Uh, you know, if, if uh, just ask Grover Norquist, uh, for example, what he thinks about just increasing the taxes by, you know, a fraction of a penny. These people do not give an inch of ground. And so if the argument is, well, it's, you know, the capitalists won't mind because it's not asking very much from them. The history and the contemporary, you know, field of class struggle dictates otherwise. Uh, They see this as a slippery slope domino effect uh, type of, 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 of thing. So with that being said, I'm gonna put you on the hot seat. What is the strongest argument in favor of UBI, one? And two, what is the most actionable policy sort of idea when it comes to that? A lot of people talk about you know capital gains taxes, financial transaction taxes, and all the rest of it. Well, to me, what is, I think, you know, in terms of uh, what are the best cases to be made for UBI is is uh, actually a political one, not an economic one, and is that it raises the expectations of workers. And so when people on the left who are supportive of UBI say, we want more resources, more wealth to go to people at the bottom of our society, I think that they're coming from a good place, and I totally support that. And on some level, that's something that we can all work with. 
right? So the question is not so much uh, where we want to be, but it's the question of how we want to get there. And I'm open, relative, uh, relatively open to different methods, different ways in which we can arrive uh, at a place where the working class is emboldened, poor people have more resources, uh, and that people can really fight back for you know their share of the wealth that they've been creating. Um, so whether that's a financial transaction tax, etc., an idea that's been floated around for a long time, uh, you know, got popular around the anti-globalization days. Uh, I think you know people like Dean Baker routinely talk about it. Um, I'm not opposed to those ideas. I just think the real question is, um, what can we actually do on the ground to build working class struggle? So I was part of the fight for 15 in fairness. So it was an effort to raise the minimum wage here in Ontario to 15 and to improve uh, employment standards for all workers. So more vacation days, more paid sick days, equal pay for equal work, etc. And what we didn't do was just craft a bunch of policies and then, you know, tell politicians we had these great ideas. We did do that, but what we primarily did and what I think our campaign was very successful at was linking up with workers in struggle, uh, so helping workers, you know, if they're on a strike, fighting for higher wages, that we were there, part of that. Uh, But we were also, you know, out talking to workers, organizing in communities, in workplaces, uh, at universities across the province, trying to raise expectations of regular people, talking to actual uh, working class people, organizing them, um, and getting them to demand more from the government and from their employers. And to me, it's like a question of that's a workable way of thinking of social policy. Have social policy, but have the organizing muscle behind it. And I think a lot of people in the UBI camp seem to maybe either forget about or downplay that aspect of social change. And that, to me, is the key. Now, I have questions about whether UBI is possible or even desirable. But fundamentally, if we're actually building working class power and working class expectations, then I think that's a good thing. A lot of really great stuff, man. I appreciate you for coming on the show. Um Thanks again, and I look forward to uh, keeping in touch with you in terms of how this pilot study is going in Ontario. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. And that's our show, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks again to David Bush for talking with me about UBI. He really laid some things out in a patient and careful way. I was quite convinced by the arguments that he made. Um, I agree that we need a, a good old-fashioned class struggle uh, and from below in order to try to win any of these policies. And anything that's sort of granted to us from on high is going to be quite partial and will ultimately be a defeat politically uh, and economically speaking. But with that being said, if you disagree, feel free to tell me so. Uh, You all are my Patreon subscribers, so head on over to Patreon, uh, post a comment to the page, uh, and, uh, you know, I'll try to give you a a good, solid response. Matt Bruenig, for example, I've had him on the show, as many of you will will know. Uh, He just started the People's Policy Project uh, that that came out of his Patreon uh, drive, fund drive. And uh, he, he's written a lot of really great arguments as to why we need UBI. And his argument uh, sort of says, like, for example, uh, some of the 
reforms that are being pushed by the trade union movement right now, fight for 15 and so on and so forth, is not actually enough to stop the wealth transfer that has happened over the past couple of decades. And he's arguing that those transfers are coming from capital. It's a really complex argument. I'll try to link to that article in the show notes. So for example, that's another, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a counter argument to today's show that I would be willing to hear. And maybe I can have Matt on the show uh, in coming weeks to offer that perspective. So if you didn't like what I said, have no fear. Uh, you know, the jury is still out on this thing. I think we have a, a lot of thinking and, and, and uh, debating to do uh, in order to get, wrap our heads around this thing adequately. In any case, next week, I have a really great guest. Walter Ben Michaels is going to be joining me. I did a great interview with him. I'm excited to bring it to you guys. You're all going to love it. He is the, the author of, of many books. Uh, the, his most popularly accessible uh, book is called The Trouble with Diversity. And uh, he, he's a legendary social and literary critic quite the rabble rouser that man is but he is an insightful uh, thinker and he is just so sharp and it was a lot of fun to talk with him so i'm excited to bring you that interview next week i have a patreon version only of that interview as well so you guys are getting your money's worth this month i'm bringing you a lot of exclusive content and i want to i'm doing that on purpose because i want to reward you for uh, the contributions that you're making to this project so i love you all uh enjoy your weekend have a nice week in general. We'll see you next time. Dead Pundit, out. You play the guitar on the MTV. That ain't working. That's the way you do it. Money for nothing and your chicks for free. Money for nothing.